This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode. Uh, you often tell me that you're a future leader. You, <laughs> That's not true, but you, sure. <laughs> you sign off emails, you put it in you know, your LinkedIn, and, and you remind me daily. And so we've- Fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're joined by two portfolio managers today who specialize in the area of future leaders. So I'm excited to see you pitch yourself to them, um, but this is going to be- a, this is going to be a great uh, interview where we talk about some up and coming, potentially great companies. That's it, Ren. It is our absolute pleasure to welcome to Equity Mates James Abella and Maroon Eunice. Guys, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. So, James and Maroon are the co portfolio managers at Fidelity's Global Future Leaders Fund. And today we're going to talk about how they broadly construct a portfolio, then look at the specific individual stocks that they hold, and then close out with our final three questions that we ask every guest. So guys, we're really excited for today to understand everything that's going on in your fund. But before we do, let's start at the top, very beginning and, and uh, introduce the fund a little. So what what is the Global Future Leader Fund? So the Fidelity Global Future Leaders Fund is really a fund that is benchmarked against the MSCI Global Midcap, which is just a developed market. So it's predominated by the US, but it's US, Europe and Japan, and that covers all global mid and small cap stocks around the 1 billion to the 40 billion market cap range. So there's a lot of innovators, there's a lot of new ideas, a lot of yeah, mid and small cap new ideas. There's also cyclicals in there, but that's pretty much what the, what the idea is. There is a unique process which follows the Australian Future Leaders Fund, uh, which which we call QMTV, which we can talk about later. Uh, but it is a very good blended process. Uh, maybe yeah, Maroon can cover off on, on that and uh, 
the, what the what the product actually is that we're running. Yeah, so basically, you know, I, I think as the name suggests, you know, Global Future Leaders, really what we're looking for is companies that are going to be, you know, superstars in their own, you know, relevant field five, ten years down the track. And they can be in a broad range of different industries or sectors. They could be solving some sort of unique problem or, or you know, have, have some sort of innovative and new solution. And we really want to find those companies as early as possible while they begin their journey and then really sort of partner up with them and, and, and ride that whole journey out because it can be quite uh, both from a financial as well as from an intellectually uh, point of view, a very satisfying thing to sort of follow that journey all the way through for for the next five, ten years on a on a stock by stock basis. So that that's the core of effectively what we're trying to do in the fund. When I think about uh, different portfolio managers and their strategies and which one I'd love to do, I think the strategy that you guys are pursuing and trying to find those next incredible companies is is one I'm particularly jealous of. I I imagine your day to day is very intellectually stimulating and and interesting. I guess from a financial perspective, you know, this question may seem a bit obvious, but I think it's important we get it off at the beginning. Why is future leaders an important thematic for investors to be exposed to? Alec, there's a lot of unique unique themes. There's some great breadth and great depth and great opportunities uh, that are very difficult to access in the Australian market. I've covered Australian small caps for over 10 years and it is also Australian small caps is a very exciting place and you can find some really amazing things. That's the place of birth for many global success stories today. But globally, there's just the breadth and depth is just wider. So you've got some really high returning businesses, really large addressable markets, innovators, uh, as Maroon mentioned, niche operators that are really solving problems for the world in a unique way. And the difference is just really the breadth and depth of the opportunity set. Um, and when you compound that over time, the return profile, we've looked at charts over 25 years and actually our benchmark outperformed large cap over 25 years by you know a few percent over 25 years, it ends up compounding to a higher number. And that for us is why we're spending our life doing what we are doing. Also, there's a lot of unresearched nature of the, the universe. Or Maroon, Maroon and I've looked at the level of coverage of large caps versus small mid caps. Obviously, it's lower and that leads to a lot of opportunities. And then just lastly, being with the Fidelity Network, Maroon and I catch up with one, one, two, sometimes three analysts every single week and talk about new ideas, what's happening in their marketplaces, what are the entrepreneurs that are coming out in their marketplace. And we've seen Australia has Canva, Atlassian, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of innovation in the world. World. These are the asset classes, and when you look at it on a global basis, there's so many of these new ideas that, it, and this is the frontier of innovation, the frontier of society, the frontier of the human brain, actually creating the next heroes of the world, the next champions, the next winners um, of asset classes and asset categories, and that that is why it is really exciting, and that's why for us, you know, we're spending our life doing it, and that's why for us, it's an important part of a portfolio. It's probably worth stepping back and, and recognizing that. In the broader global context, Australia sort of makes up about 2 or 3%, whether you look at the, the large cap index or the small cap index or the mid cap index uh, for that matter. So whilst there are plenty of opportunities available in Australia, you really are fishing in a pond that is a very, very tiny sliver of what's out there. And so you can imagine how many more opportunities you would come across and, and how many more exciting areas that you could uncover if you opened up. Uh, your world to the remaining 97 or 98% that, that you know sits beyond our shores. 
And so for us, I think that's why it's, it's really exciting. You really are not restricted in any way, shape or form. As James said, this is the frontier of innovation. And there's just so much of it. As soon as you start to look abroad, places like the US, places like China, there's just so much activity and so many exciting things happening. I think that's sort of why you, you want to really want to be exposed to it rather than keeping yourself very uh, restrained and, and narrow in what you look at. So we've seen companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, you know, continue to dominate leadership. Uh, positions in their industries. And they also continue to, I guess, disrupt as well. Like they just keep growing and, and uh, yeah, building on the, the, the power that they have in their marketplace. What, what makes you think that they will be disrupted uh, by the next generation of businesses? That's a really interesting question. And, and I guess you just have to look back at history. At different points in history, incumbent legacy dominant players have always been disrupted. And there's this really good concept, which was turned into a book by a Harvard professor called The Innovator's Dilemma, which basically outlines why it's very hard for incumbents to stay ahead of the curve. And I mean, to drill it down into very simple terms, it's very hard when you're already large, established, set in your ways, and you have an existing book of business to then spend a lot of time and effort and money developing a new disruptive technology which will cannibalize your own existing business. It's, it's very, very hard. Whereas if you're starting from a blank sheet of paper, you don't have those existing relationships, those existing customer relationships, the existing revenues to protect. So you can go out there, go on the limb and try for the moonshot. And so I'll, I'll give you an example. If you were a BMW or a Volvo, it would have been very hard for you having spent the last 50 years spending billions of dollars in finessing the next generation of petrol engine to then come along and, and simply say, we're going to pivot a hard pivot straight into, straight into uh, you know, electric motors, for example, electric vehicles, because your, your, your whole business model has been predicated on selling you know, a better version of a petrol engine. But for Tesla, they didn't have any, any of those issues to, to protect. So when you're starting with a blank sheet of paper, you can often do things that are, that are out there and innovate and you know, take the bold move, which is, which is quite hard to do. And so I'm not necessarily saying Microsoft and Amazon and Apple, are, you know, their, their days are numbered, but just history would show us that over time, it, it's, it's very hard for, for a leader to stay number one for 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And it's little all throughout history. Yeah. Geez, I'd love to see Amazon get knocked off. That'd be <laughs> some special I mean, company. Amazon, Amazon's a classic example, right? If, if you go back 20 years ago, Walmart was in the US, the be all and end all. Yeah. Uh, and no one would have thought Walmart would have been knocked off its purchase number one retailer. And then Amazon came along and, and, and basically knocked them off. So even, even in the case of Amazon, we've seen them disrupt someone else. So it is possible. It's hard to envisage now where we sit at this point in time, but it is possible that in 20 years' time, something else comes along and Amazon becomes like the Walmart and the targets of, of yesteryear. Yeah, Bryce, mm. it's fascinating. I, mean, I spent a few plane rides reading the massive Bezos book called The Everything Store, and that oh, was a yeah. you know, massive book, but it just shows you the psychology and the motivation behind what he was doing and how it took 20 years you know, to get there, and now he's there, and now it's you know, a massive you know, trillion-dollar company. And even Jeff Bezos, he said, he said in 20 years, Amazon won't exist. You know, it'll be something else or it'll be in a different form. So it's fascinating that even the guy Mm. who's the success story, you know, massive success story of the decade is himself said exactly what the question you're asking, what Maroon's commented is, in 20 years, this will be different. And that is the nature of disruption and innovation. It 
it's the human brain. Human brain comes up with new ideas. Um, business is mm. competitive, and that's the nature of the beast. It, it is the nature of change, but it is fascinating. It is fascinating, and I think that's the thing we love about investing. It's you know, it, it is obviously of exercise in finance and you know studying companies' numbers, but it, it really is about. The, the changing world around us mm-hmm. and, and you can learn so much about so many different industries by becoming an investor. Mm. But when you guys are looking at all of these companies, we imagine that one thing that a lot of companies say is that they're going to be a future leader, <laughs> future in, leader in a new industry or an existing industry. And, you know, as an entrepreneur or as a CEO, you have to have that belief that you're going to be a future leader to invest your time and your resources into you know, uh, into this business. So as fund managers looking for those really special uh, future global leaders, how do you cut through, you know, all the noise and uh, all the salesmanship out there and really find those special gems uh, amongst the investing universe? Yeah, I think Brendan and I have our own different skill set on this one, so I'll, I'll discuss mine. There is, I've covered Australian small caps, there's a lot of storytelling, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of founders, a lot of innovators, a lot of leaders, a lot of genius as well. And that's the case in global mid and small caps as well. But there are also future failures and fraudsters, and we've seen blow up after blow up in the Australian market. And what you need to do is keep a, a very close ear to the ground and really understand your marketplace. Know what the market is, what are they disrupting, what are they displacing, what are they actually adding to the the marketplace? What's the problem that they're solving for? So I'd say it's a bit of an art and science of focusing on the numbers and focusing on the people as well as the business. So on the art side, you've got to focus on the idea, the concept, the innovation, the new, the creative and the inspiring. And that's all the good stuff, the creative stuff. And you need to keep your ear close to the ground to make sure that you actually absorb that and listen to that creativity and newness. On the hard side, on the science side, you need to focus on the numbers, the markets, the market structure, the reputation of the company, the reputation of the management, the reputation of the product, what problem and solutions are there, and what is the ability to actually either move this company into a success environment or move the company into a failure environment. And a lot of that comes down to science. So there's a lot of art and a lot of science. And I think you need to use Art and science, left brain, right brain, numbers, words, people, markets. It's a real, um, I guess, collective and like Munga said, it's a multifaceted, multidiscipline process to go through, especially in mid caps and small caps. But that's how I've sort of characterized it and how I've sort of survived the last sort of 10 years in, in, in Aussie and that's what we're doing in global as well. Maroon, hand it over to you. Yeah, look, I, I would reiterate a lot of the points James mentioned, especially about combining you know, the art and the science part because it is a blend of both. A couple of things I'd add. Firstly, what's the problem they're solving? Is it a big problem they're solving? And is the product or the service they're bringing, is it a slight iteration or improvement on something that's existing or is it something completely revolutionary and new? Because if it is a slight improvement or a minor iteration on something that we have there, it's just it's a little bit better version of what we have. Whereas something that's new, you know, it's completely revolutionary. That is different. So, so the addressable market will be huge. The, the problem that they can solve will be huge. And I, I think that's a key point. The other thing you've got to look at is where are they like in the industry life cycle? Are these guys the first guys in there? 
is there a lot of people doing the same sort of thing? Because if, if they are the first in there and you look around and you look around for a long time and you can't find anyone else, then these guys really have a head start on, on everyone else. And, and, and by the time other people start to sort of think about, hey, we should get into this area, they've iterated again and again and again. So you really have to look at how crowded that space is because often you find this, this new exciting area, but there's already 10 people trying to solve that problem. And, and it's quite hard trying to pick a winner out of 10. Whereas if someone's got a clear head start, they're in there before anyone else, you could sort of see, okay, these guys have a head start. And unless they shoot themselves in the foot, they should be able to maintain that lead going forward and everyone will always be playing catch-up to them. It's pretty hard to to sort of play catch-up. So I'd I'd add those sort of um, two areas to be able to sort of cut through, I guess, the the storytelling, uh, you know, versus the, the, the real deal. So let's turn to chatting about actually building the portfolio. You mentioned there that, you know, you're looking at a global set of companies. The, the fund is very well diversified across a number of different geographies and industries. Why firstly look at different geographies? What advantage does that give you guys? And then also how relevant are top-down, you know, macroeconomic factors when assessing companies in different geographies? Yeah, so basically, I mean, on, on the need to sort of look global, I sort of touched on that a, a little bit earlier in, in the sense that Australia is, you know, 2 or 3% of the world. So I think if you really want to maximise your chances of finding that next exciting story, you really need to look beyond that. The world is, is a huge ocean. Australia proverbially is, is a small lake. Ideally, you want to be fishing in a, in a huge ocean rather than in a small lake. And so I think that's sort of why you want to look, you know, across multiple jurisdictions, multiple geographies. The US for a number of different reasons, has been the hub of innovation, continues to be the hub of innovation globally. China is fast catching up. But there's a lot of infrastructure that sort of goes into building a hub of innovation. You need to have really good universities, right, which the US has plenty of. You need to have a well-ingrained culture of innovation and being entrepreneurial, which the US, you know, definitely has in spades. You need to have access to a lot of capital because these ideas, they, they do require capital to get them off the ground. And so the US has, you know, very broad, very deep capital markets and especially sort of in the venture capital and private equity world. So a lot of that infrastructure sort of goes into it. Uh, US is naturally the biggest exposure in our fund and it also is the biggest exposure in in the index itself. So I think that really is just a a reflection of the fact that they are global innovation leaders. Now, in terms of top-down, we do take into account some top-down, especially around things like where we are in the cycle and, and things like interest rates and inflation. We're not dogmatic in terms of we only want exposure to this jurisdiction or not. We really are trying to find the best ideas globally. And so if if that stock is situated in Europe or or Japan or the US, wherever it may be, we're really trying to uncover that and find it. Because for you to be a future leader and to continue to grow for the next five, 10 years, most of the time you're going to have to end up becoming a global business anyway. Right. If, if you're only a domestic business, there's only so much growth that you could sort of tap into before you cap out because you've dominated your home market. So really, we're trying to find those stories that can grow for 10, 15, 20 years. Those sorts of names would naturally have to step out of their own home market uh, in most instances and, and start to dominate the globe. They just happen to be situated in, in a particular geography. So it doesn't really matter too much whether the base of the business is Japan or Europe or the US or, or anywhere else in between effectively what we're trying to find is is those sorts of companies and they are diversified across across industries as well uh, we can sort of touch into that um, um, if you want but yeah I think that's sort of the need why you want to 
look beyond just Australia. Yeah, well, let's turn to industries because you just mentioned it there. We, we had a look at the spread of industries in the portfolio and it, it's incredibly well diversified across different industries. Uh, five industries each have over 10% of the portfolio, IT, industrials, consumer discretionary, financials and healthcare. So, you know, a, a broad range um, and I imagine a pretty diverse uh, array of businesses in, in each of those industries. But if you think about the portfolio holistically, are there any sort of key thematics or key traits that tie these businesses in different industries trying to solve different problems together? Yeah, it's stuff that we've actually touched upon. Basically, irrespective of your industry, if you have a unique solution to a problem that there aren't many other people doing that, existing players um, trying to solve for it, if you have the right infrastructure, if you have the right management team in place, if you have the right culture, basically you have a long growth runway. And those particular areas, IT, um, consumer discretionary, financials, healthcare, uh, industrials, a lot of those will allow you to invest in the business and differentiate yourself. So if you sort of look at what's not included in there, energy, for example, resources not included in there. Why? Because you're a commodity product. There's no way for you to differentiate yourself. If I'm mining for iron ore and you're mining for iron ore, we're both price takers. I could be a little bit cleverer on, on the cost side. I can lower my costs and therefore I can earn a slightly higher margin than what you earn. But ultimately, we're selling the same thing. There's no room for us to differentiate ourselves. Whereas all those sectors you mentioned, IT, industrials, consumer, like you can build a brand. You can separate yourself from everyone else. That gives you pricing power. That gives you brand affinity, brand awareness, brand loyalty. Uh, and then you start to invoke a particular emotion with your customer set. So if if you're known for you know a particular luxury brand, for example, it's very hard for someone to invoke that same sort of emotional response in the consumer that you do, for example. Or if you're Ferrari, you know, a Holden's not going to invoke the same sort of emotional response in the consumer as what a Ferrari does. So you really separate yourself. You become a very unique offering, and that gives you the ability to grow for 10, 15, 20 years. And I think that's sort of why those sectors are, are much larger in the index. High return would be the only thing I'd add. Like all those things Maroon said, it delivers you a long runway of higher returns. So we use a thing called viability, sustainability, credibility as, as our stock picking pillar um, and viability is about high returns, the persistency of those returns, how frequent they are, how long you can hold on to them for. The sustainability is about the market structure and how long the market holds you as a leader. And as Maroon mentioned, it's about customer entrenchment and also reinvestment. And when you do have something where there is a love factor or a trust factor or an X factor, those things will allow you to hold that position for many years and sometimes many decades. If you can do that and compound that at a high rate, you've got a future leader by definition. And that is what we try to spend our life trying to find. I love the love factor. We've heard a few managers speak about that. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. We, we often talk about different investing philosophies here on the podcast. You know, everyone has their own thoughts on the most appropriate way to invest or what works best for them. But it seems like you guys take a really interesting approach by combining sort of four philosophies being quality, momentum, transition, and value. And I guess from that, you believe that the balance across those four factors deliver consistent returns. So are you able to explain your thinking or the research here? 
Yeah, perfect. We'll come back to love again. So it's quality, value, <laughs> transition, momentum. Basically, they're four quadrants. And for me, I've written a written actually a paper on this one and talk about this. That basically, that, that's the investor psychology. And once your brain is in that position, your whole parameters of even where your eyes go, where your ears go, is actually judged by where you put the company on the journey, on the QVTM journey. So let, I'll just go through the four quadrants quickly and you can sort of see mm. how the mindset shifts. And the thing is, this tells you why you'll win and why you'll lose as well because um, it's much like four different jungles or four different environments. Um, so first one, quality, is I, I do call the love quadrant. Uh, it is all, it's a beautiful thing. You've got beautiful compounders in there companies that are multi-baggers and things that compound over years and decades. And I call it, it's like a long-term marriage on the beautiful side. You know, you can create and build empires on beautiful marriage marriages. Um, companies like LVMH or, you know, these sort of companies, even Ferrari, there's a family businesses and, and Walmart, as Maroon mentioned before, they, they, they've gone for generations, actually. It's a beautiful family business run with high returns, very respectful culture, and that's what you get in the beautiful compounder. Australian context, we've had Cochlear, CSL, uh, James Hardy, Domino's Pizza, JB Hi-Fi, high-quality businesses that have compounded over decades um, and caused, you know, multiple, multiple returns. On the downside of the love quadrant is blindness. Love is blind. And this is the danger of investing. You fall in love with the stock. You forget about the market structure. You forget about competition. So business is not like a long-term marriage because it is competitive. There is complacency. There is ego. There is innovation and there is consumer change. And this is what eventually erodes away either a superior return or a supernormal profit into something a bit more normal. And when that happens, that's when you can start to get phrase and the love story, the love story starts to break. And that can lead to a lot of different things, multiple downgrades, uh, earnings, misses, etc. But that love quadrant is about sort of 40 to 50% of the portfolio, which gives us a, a quite a big quality skew. But that's what I call a love quadrant. The value quadrant is different. This is a land of neglect. It's the second group that we have. It's where earnings, people aren't, I guess, focused on the stocks. Earnings are, are there and the balance sheet's good. The market structure's good, but the valuation is just very attractive and too compelling for Maroon and I to ignore. And that's what we call the value quadrant. That's the positive story. Um, on the negative side of value, you can have companies with poor balance sheets, poor market structures, poor earnings, poor outlook, structural losers that Maroon and I wouldn't own. Um, those are the ones that you know you want to avoid as structural losers. But the value stories have potential in them. They have stability. They have pillars of success, but they're just not either appreciated or not loved at all. It's the opposite of the love. Transition is the next group, uh, which is, yeah, about turnarounds. It's sort of the no man's land or the land of hope, the, ha the land of change. And this is where the value stories can either get up with, with change, cultural change, or some sort of a plan to get themselves out of that land of neglect. So it's, it's really the, the land of hope, I call that quadrant, the land of hope, the land of change. And in Australia, the example was Qantas, when Maroon you know, picked that one up at a dollar. There was a lot of change by Alan Joyce. The market improved, oil price moved, the stock went from a dollar to $5. And that's what can happen. Value transition to momentum, those sort of three phases can be 5x in, in a cyclical. And momentum is really a consensus party. I call it the nightclub quadrant. Um, the nightclub quadrant <laughs> is cool, it's hot, it's sweaty, it's liquid, it's popular, it's fun. People are feeling good. But that's that's the great thing about it. But that's also where the risk lies, that you there's a lot of complacency, there's a lot of confidence, there's a lot of, I guess you call it Dutch courage. There's a lot of 
comfort, much like those books you hear about a herd, you're in a herd or you're on the night, you know, on the, on the dance floor, you're surrounded by everyone dancing and everyone's having fun. But if you're in a herd in the jungle and that herd shifts and you're in the middle of that herd, not on the edge of the herd, you know, you're at the risk of getting, of getting run over. So you need to be very careful. And this bringing that back to stocks, you know, it, it's a hot sector. It's a popular stock that everyone likes. And then something happens, um, or it's peak cycle and then the party's over basically. So when you hit peak earnings, peak cycle, peak valuation, peak sentiment, that's pretty much the end of the journey. And then it will start to go back into transition and start to go into no man's land again. And that's what you've got to be careful of in momentum. It's happened with cyclicals. It happens very much um, in themes as well. Cool themes, hot themes can be really hot and then not as much um, like property or resources or any sort of cyclical um, where there's not structural growth, which you may see in those um, those ones Alex mentioned in terms of industrials, uh, healthcare and technology. That's where you get more structural growth, whereas a lot of the other sectors, it's all about cyclical growth. So they tend to be momentum, transition, value and work in that, work in that triangle, uh, whereas the structural winners tend to work in that quality quadrant. So you need to be careful of the quality cracks. That's where that's that's sort of taken twenty years of development in my mm. head. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's really it really keeps us safe. It keeps Maroon and I safe because we know. Okay, Maroon and I talk about it. You know, for half an hour we'll talk about one stock. Maroon, are we in love with it? Maroon, has management lost it? Are they getting too cocky? Um, is there competitors? Why are they making a super normal profit? What's the market structure? Why has it lasted so long? What's it going to be like in two years' time? And analyzing stocks in the mindset of this paradigm allows us to think about the risks in a multifaceted way. That's what we do in quality. In momentum, we'd ask those questions about cyclicality of earnings, sentiment, profits, etc. Um, is it maroon? Is it peak? Maroon, it's peak, 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 peak. We need to sell. Um, and so it's yeah, very much this sort of the love, the nightclub, no man's land and the land of neglect is a paradigm set and it really, I guess, keeps us keeps us in check. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, James, if it's taken you 20 years to develop that paradigm, I think you've done very well to summarize it in four minutes. So uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. And I think think it's just a reminder that there are many ways to make money in the market, but what you guys clearly have is a very clear framework in in the way that you approach it. And so I think that that was great to hear that. Now, we, we want to move to some specific stocks that you guys hold in your portfolio. Uh, here some uh, that you guys love or that you guys are really excited about. Uh, but before we do that, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So as I mentioned before the break, we want to move to, uh, I guess, get specific and talk about some of the uh, the stocks that you hold uh, that you're particularly excited about. Um, so before uh, we started recording today, we asked each of you to think of uh, one stock uh, that's in your top 10. Well, it doesn't have to be in your top 10. It could be just in the portfolio that you're really excited about. And I guess we want from each of you to hear what the company is, what it does, and then, you know, sort of how you discovered it and what you think their future prospects look like. And I'm particularly excited to do this because I had a look at your top 10 holdings and I only recognize two of the 10 names. So I think I'm going to hear about some companies that I don't know about before. Uh, So Maroon, why don't we start with you? Of the companies in your portfolio, what's one that you're particularly excited about? So one one I would sort of highlight is called Arthur J. Gallagher. The name isn't particularly inspiring and actually what they do isn't particularly inspiring, but you'll sort of see why why I think it's it's a really good story. Basically, Arthur J. Gallagher, it's an umbrella company. It owns a bunch of different insurance brokers. It's one of the larger ones around the world. Now, insurance broking, believe it or not, is actually a really good business. It's capital light because you're not the one that's underwriting all the risk but you have all the customer relationships, right? So the, so the customer goes through you and then you you find them a commoditized insurance product. So you really own the key part of the value chain, which is the customer relationship. And coming back to something James mentioned earlier, trust is a big thing. So if you trust your insurance broker as a business or as an individual, you will sort of go back to them over and over again. And even if you shift policy from, from provider to provider, you still have that relationship. So they own, they own the key part of the value chain, which is really the customer relationship which makes them a lot more indispensable, whereas the actual underwriters themselves are the ones providing commoditized product. And so what does that translate into? Well, this is a sort of company that we think top-line revenue could sort of be around um, mid-single-digit growth year in, year out, and they have a really long track record of doing that. They expand margins each and every single year because one of the things they do is they acquire some of the smaller brokers. So if you have a small insurance broking operation, you've got five individuals there, you come along, you get acquired by this by this bigger entity, they suck you into their group, they let you operate on your own, but a lot of the costs get shifted out, right? So you no longer have overheads, you no longer have a whole bunch of costs that you were doing on your own because now the parent takes care of that. So there's margin uplift there that takes place each and every single time. Um, so these guys grow their margins and they have been growing their margins over time. So what does that result in? It results in earnings growth pretty much year in, year out, somewhere around the mid-teens, you know, which is a really good way to sort of compound over time. You've got return on equity, again, in the mid-teens. They generate a lot of cash because they don't need to fund working capital to grow. So they use that cash to pay dividends. They use that cash to acquire. And so this business, I think, is one that you can buy. Um, they're in a, a really good part of the, the value chain and you can sort of hold it for the next five, 10 years and it'll be one that we think will be able to deliver you very attractive, call it 15% type returns year in, year out you know, over the course of the next decade. And so whilst it may not be the most sexy company out there, I think it definitely forms a, a you know a really good core holding that you could sort of just bank on and, and put it in your bottom drawer and, and leave that for the next five, 10 years. And James, what about you? What company is exciting you in uh, from your top 10? 
my sort of uh, one in the top ten that's one of our favourites. It's called Icon, I-C-O-N, um, PLC, because it's a London one, actually based in Ireland, and the code is I-C-L-R in the US listed on the NASDAQ. It's about a $20 billion market cap stock. It actually does um, consulting and clinical development in, in biotech and the healthcare industry. It was founded in 1990, so it's 31 years old, does about $5 billion of revenue currently, is a very, future leaders-wise, it, it ticks all the boxes, very steady high quality, one of these beautiful compounders um, that looks really, really great. It's gone up 11 times in the last decade, so 11 times over the last 10 years, but really good return, a respected leader, has actually won quite a lot of awards. 2018 and 2019 was award-winning in life sciences and clinical research. Only, you know, the last sort of five, six years expanded more aggressively into the US, UK and Japan, and just recently bought the, a big similar business to themselves, PRA Health Services, uh, which was an over $10 billion transaction and has now really made it a world leader in clinical testing and clinical trial uh, support and clinical development to the pharmaceutical industry. It's a B2B business. It, it sits in the background. It actually did quite a lot of work during COVID and a lot of the COVID um, tests and, and the COVID PCR tests. This company was involved in that. You know, they're quite proud of that and there's a lot of news flow around that. But yeah, a really great business. Like Marisa, great returns, um, great multiple, one that we've held for a long time. Yeah, one that I really like and is in our top 10 and hopefully we hold it for a number of years. Well, look, as I said, I didn't recognize a lot of companies in that top 10. Hadn't heard of either of those. So uh, that's great. Two more companies for me to uh, take away and research. One company that did catch my eye and that I, I do know that was in your top 10 was Pinterest. And I think a lot of listeners would be familiar with the platform, but would be surprised to see it considered a future leader in the social media space. There's obviously some big names currently leading that space. So what's the thesis with Pinterest? How, how do you see it becoming a future leader in the space? Yeah, um, that, that's an interesting one because Pinterest often gets lumped in that social media category, but we, we tend to think of it as, as something completely different. If you sort of think about your Facebooks and your Instagrams, you usually go to them Every day you're looking at what your friends are up to or you're just killing some time. Pinterest really isn't one of those things. Pinterest is more about inspiration for a particular special interest, right? And so what these guys specialize in is, is giving you inspiration. So whether it's planning a wedding or um, some honeymoon or vacation destination ideas, maybe you want to do some remodeling to your house or, or you know, um, redo your living room and you want some inspiration around different sort of styles that you can bring in for furniture, etc. So Pinterest is one of those things where... You go there because you have something and you want to see what's out there because you want to get some ideas, you want to get some inspiration and incorporate it into whatever project that is that you're doing. And so they spent the first, you know, the first phase of their life really building that user base. And they, they have a decent user base now. Um, there's about 90 odd million active users in the US. There's about 300, there's about four times that, about 350 million active users outside the US. And so they're building that, but it's still very small if you consider, you know, the likes of Facebook and Instagram who have billions of users out there. These guys can, can continue to add more and more users. But the really interesting thing about Pinterest and, and, and where I think the business is going to develop over time, let's say you're, you're doing a new kitchen and I can relate to this because I'm, I'm in the process of building a house right now. So, you know, my fiance and I have sat down, looked through Pinterest, looked at different, say, kitchen ideas. And so you see a really cool kitchen, you really like the stone bench top, right? Now, 
in the past, you find that sort of image on, on, say, Google Images, and then you spend the next week or so trying to go to different providers. You know, do you have something similar to this sort of stone bench top? Yes, no, you know, how close can we get it to that? Where Pinterest want to go to is they want to integrate with all of these product providers. So, so I see a stone bench top on a photo I like. I can click through to that and I can actually find the provider who sells that exact stone bench top. So it's not only now going to give me inspiration for an idea, it's also going to take me straight through to the person who's going to sell it to me. So there's no more running around two or three weekends in a row trying to find, you know, a stone that's as similar to this thing as possible or a couch that looks very similar to it. I click through, takes you through to Nick Scarly or whoever it may be anywhere around the world. You see that exact sofa, you see the price, you buy it they get a cut out of that. So really what they're trying to do is channel that loyal customer base. And and when you go to Pinterest, you're not really looking at inspiration on Facebook, for example, right? You're not looking for how would I do up my living room on Facebook or, or maybe you'll get some ideas from Instagram. But again, you don't really have that sort of connection to be able to buy it. So what does that mean for them? The ARPU, which is the revenue they generate per user, right now is very low compared to other, I guess, digital platforms. We think that can grow over time. The more interesting part is the ARPU in the US is about three or four times the size of the ARPU internationally. Now, the US, obviously, a developed market, high disposable income, but Europe's also the same. Australia is also the same. There's lots of other places around the world that are also the same. So, by virtue of the fact that they're more, um, their, their legacy is the US, we think that over time, as they develop more in places like Europe, Australia, Canada, you know, parts of Asia, we think that ARPU in the rest of the world segment can grow you know, and, and get close to where the US is. And when you're talking about a user base that's four times the size in the international segment versus the US, that's pretty powerful there in terms of what the, the revenue uplift they can generate over time. So it really is, I think, going to occupy a space that's very different to everyone else. It's, it's very niche. It's very special needs, inspiration-driven. From a, from a business point of view, why would you advertise an interest? Well, you have a warm lead there. Like I can put my sofa, if I'm Nick Scarly, I can put my sofa and advertise it on, on Facebook, but it's very hit and miss. There might be a thousand people that scroll past my ad and it only resonates with one particular person. Whereas if I put that sofa on Pinterest and I get a click-through, I know for sure that person is very, very interested in that particular sofa. So the conversion rate from a, from a business advertising point of view is going to be very, very high, you know, a lot higher than what it's going to be for a very shotgun, scattergun, hit-and-miss type platform, which will be you know an Instagram or, or a Facebook. So it is very different in our minds to, to those. It occupies a different space. Uh, it doesn't really compete head-to-head. And I think what it's trying to do is, is 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 very unique in that regard. I love that. I love the the fact that you know I thought I had an idea of what the company did, and you know five minutes later, after hearing you talk about it, I have a completely different view of it. I think that's that's why we love speaking to expert investors because there's always so much to learn, and you know you guys have put a lot of thought into a lot of these things. So I think that's that's a really good place to uh, move to our final three questions. We always like to uh, finish by asking the same questions. Before we do, um, if people want to uh, find out more about the two of you and, and the fund that you both manage together, uh, they can go online, uh, Fidelity's website, it's the Global Future Leaders Fund. But is there anywhere else, you know, social media, maybe Pinterest, uh, if they want to find out more about the two of you online? Uh, LinkedIn, we have a presence on LinkedIn. That's probably about it, I think. 
Cool. I would uh, jump in there and say fidelity.com.au, but you also do write a quarterly called From the Desk, of which uh, the Equity Mates community can go and subscribe to on your fund page and the website. Additionally, um, sign up to your insights newsletter that Fidelity uh, produced. That's not just the two of you providing incredible insights, but also uh, access to your global research team as well. So I'd suggest get, giving that a read if you've enjoyed hearing what uh, James and Maroon have spoken about today. Mm. And go and look at their top 10 holdings because see if you can beat me. I knew two. See if you knew more than, <laughs> more than me. But, um, you know, we love finding new companies uh, here at Equity Mates, companies that are doing really interesting things that we haven't heard about. And it's really cool what you guys are what you guys are uncovering and, and what we can learn from. Just out of interest, Alec, what were the two that, that you recognised? Pinterest was one and what was the other one? Pinterest and Tektronic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Judge me. Judge away. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> Actually, not a lot of people would know Tektronic. They would know the brands that Tektronic owned, but mm. not a lot of people that we speak to know the sort of parent company, you know, the, the umbrella that owns all those brands. So yeah, you talk about yeah. or Ryobi, people go, oh, yeah, I know that. Mm. We the, the only reason I knew it is because we've spoken to a few other experts on the podcast and then on our Ausbiz show and um, it, it gets brought up a little bit. It's, it's a really interesting company. Um, doing some doing like just it's got an incredible story and you know obviously you're not alone in thinking that it's got incredible future prospects yeah absolutely yeah so we'll we'll move to these final three questions uh we'll ask them uh to each of you and we'll start with do you guys have any books that you consider must reads and James, why don't why don't we start with you for this one? Sure. Look, what Maroon and I are doing, I guess someone in the US has done for decades before us as well, and someone that I've actually spoke to as one of my sort of training sessions after 17 years with Fidelity, um, spent a number of years uh, talking to a guy called the name of Joel Tillinghast. So the book is Joel Tillinghast, Big Money Think Small, and it's called yeah, Big Money Think Small, Biases, Blind Spots, and Smarter Investing, particularly focused on small caps, but a really great one to read. The other one's um, Christopher Mayer, which is 100 Baggers, so stocks that return 100 to 1, how to find them. So that's all about 100 Baggers, it's our world, um, and particularly focused on small caps. And the other one's another Fidelity one, actually, Peter Lynch, uh, one up on Wall Street, an old classic, I guess. And just saying that a lot of people, you know, just like you, you know, two out of 10 in our, in our top 10, there's a world out there that, that's changing, that's, you know, talking to you all the time. So just kind of listen in and read and listen to people in conversations. And a lot of the time, a lot of ideas in the world are, are right in front of your face. So one up on Wall Street, an old classic by Peter Lynch. That's my third one. Nice one. And Maroon, anything, uh, any books to add to that list? Yeah. So I, I would, I would um, choose uh, Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham, another classic. And I think, you know, everyone sort of has to read that book. It's, it's almost like the Bible on how to think about investing. Um, it was written in a different day and age. Perhaps some of, some of the valuation concepts are, are a little bit dated, uh, you know, versus where we are today. But I think in terms of giving you a framework in terms of how to think about investing, I think, you know, that, that, that's an absolute must. Another one I would choose um, is called Thinking Fast and Slow, which is more of a, 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 a you know, psychology uh, book, but I think it's really important for you to be able to understand the natural limitations that we as humans uh, are born with in terms of how our brain operates and how our brain thinks. And, and quite often we can be our own worst enemy in terms of we can do things that are um, really adverse to our you know long-term financial health and, and, and well-being. And so I think understanding those shortcomings and understanding where we can trip up ourselves and, and, and being aware of that, I think, is a first step towards, you know, making you uh, more aware and, and, and potentially a better, a better investor over time. 
Mm. And then the final one I'd say is, is is another sort of fidelity one. We'll we'll throw it in there. But Anthony Bolton, it's called Investing Against the Tide. And for those that don't know Anthony Bolton, he was a, a very successful fidelity investor for almost 30 years, um, spent a lot of his time in the UK, but the last sort of three or four years uh, in China. Um, amazing long-term track record in the UK over sort of 20, 25 years. He was, he was able to sort of compound um, at over sort of 20% per annum. So it's a staggering uh, record. Uh, and, and his approach is very contrarian. Um, so it, 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 it's a bit different, but, but he, he sort of goes into you know, different chapters, how to sort of think about different concepts about investing. And I think it's well-written. It's very easy to understand. It's not overly technical. So I think it's, it's, it's also a good one to sort of pick up very early on in your, in your investing career and, and learn some insights from someone who's you know, done it day in, day out for, for a long period of time. Love it. Six great books there to add to everyone's reading list. Uh, we'll move to the next question. And uh, this is a tough one because we ask you to try and answer Answer it in 60 seconds or less. Forget valuation, uh, forget, you know, investing in it right now today, just looking at the company itself. In 60 seconds or less, what's the best company you've ever come across? And James, why don't we start with you again? For me, it's realestate.com.au. I was told by someone who's very experienced that this is the best thing he's seen in his life and he was in his 50s or late early 60s. So it's realestate.com.au, Australia's number one retail portal, um, real estate portal. It went from 20 cents to over $100, which is a 500 bagger over two decades. That is not something that you see very often in your lifetime, if at all. Um, But for a 500 bagger, that is the most exciting investment I have seen in my life. 500 bagger. Wow. Love to see it. (laughs) Maroon, what about you? Uh, You got another 500 bagger that you can share with us? Not quite. It's quite rare to find these 500 baggers, but I'm going to pick one um, and it's going to be Google. Really, these guys, in terms of what they've been able to innovate, you know, they started off as a search engine platform. They weren't even the first to market, right? For, for those who are, who are old enough, you might remember things like Yahoo and Ask Jeeves and Alta Vista back in the day. I mean, these guys were sort of late to the party, but they just did it better than everyone else. And they've just been able to continue to innovate and, and get into new areas. And, you know, they're doing things like driverless cars and, 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 and potentially getting into glasses and, and, and all these sorts of things. Um, and they are really one of the leaders in, in AI um, and machine learning, I think, going forward. Forward. So the fact that you know that they've defied. If you sort of go back to the question earlier about you know being disrupted, these guys have have maintained their edge, even you know expanding beyond just the search engine platform. They've, they've been able to maintain that culture of innovation. I've had the privilege of, of going to Silicon Valley a couple of times and, and seeing um, two of their campuses. One is their main campus, the other one is their Google Cloud campus, and it's just an amazing place to be. So the talent they attract, the culture they have. Um, it really is a staggering company. It hasn't gone up 500 times, but I think it IPO'd at $50 and now it's close to $3,000. So even though it didn't go up 500 times, if you managed to buy it very early on, you would not be upset with yourself uh, today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, love that. Two, two great companies. And then if we turn to our final question, um, if you think back to your very early days starting out as investors, what advice would you have for your younger self? And Maroon, this time, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, one thing I'd I'd say is this really is a lifelong journey. Um, There are no shortcuts. Uh, It really is, you know, a a case of continuously um, investing in yourself, um, educating yourself, whether it's reading books, whether it's sort of listening to podcasts. There's an enormous amount of information out there. You don't have to become an expert on this overnight. 
but I think education is a big thing. And so, you know, sometimes you hear, you hear stories about people who sort of go, go in there blindly and sort of, you know, a day trading or things like that, and they might sort of hurt themselves. I think if you take the time, you, inv- you start early, but you invest in your own education. This really is a lifelong journey. And not only will your returns get better over time, but I think the intellectual development that you gain along the way is also very gratifying, you know, to sort of see yourself develop as an investor through, you know, through education, through learning from different people, through hearing, you know, other people's mistakes, I, I think is really important. So I would say keep an open mind. I'm in my late 30s now, James in his mid 40s, and both of us still act like we're, we're relatively new to the space. We're really hungry to learn, even at our age, having, you know, had sort of two decades of experience in, in the markets. I've got a list of books that is always... 20 ahead of sort of where I'm up to. So, you know, I've got enough books now to sort of occupy me for the next two years and that still won't stop me from from trying to acquire more and more knowledge. So never stop. Yeah, I love that. I love that sentiment. And James, uh, from your perspective, what advice would you give your younger self? Yeah, I'd say just think big and be open to being inspired. I guess future leaders change really rapidly. The world is changing really fast. Um, I think it was Ferris Bueller, uh, that one. It's the world's changing pretty fast. You blink and you'll miss it. So, uh, Look, the world is changing fast. There's innovations and entrepreneurs and new ideas coming at us every single minute of the day. It is a fascinating place. So just think big and be open to being inspired. An idea, I've heard companies talk about an idea 10 years ago, and now they're over $10 billion companies. And that is just something that you need to constantly keep your eye open for. And it's it's very difficult to see sometimes, but you just need to keep your eyes and ears open um, and be open to being inspired. Mm. Well, James and Maroon, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with the two of you. You've certainly uh, continued to inspire me about the opportunities that investing has globally, and I'm sure the same goes for Alec, and I'm sure the same goes for the rest of our community. It's been great listening to you, and uh, I've taken a lot away from this conversation. So thank you very much. Uh, just a reminder to the Equitymates community, fidelity.com.au, if you'd like more information on the fund that James and Maroon uh, run, uh, sign up to their From the Desk uh, if you'd like to get some uh, written content from them as well. And also the, there's an, a newsletter that has plenty of insights from Fidelity and their global research team as well. So this episode was proudly sponsored by Fidelity and we thank the two of you very, very much for your time and uh, we look forward to catching up again in the future. Thanks for having us, Thanks guys. very much. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you. So drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equity Mates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. 
For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website, where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.